The Daily Dose is produced by Authentic You in collaboration with North Coast HIV and related programs, also known as North Coast HARP. It's jointly funded by North Coast HARP and the New South Wales Ministry of Health. You're listening to The Daily Dose. The Daily Dose is a podcast about the life stories of people who inject drugs. We'll be discussing substance use, addiction, self-harm, trauma and other topics that may not be appropriate for certain listeners. We encourage all of you to be in a safe space when listening to this podcast. Today we meet Heidi. She's arrived with cake. Her mum has made it for her to bring to our interview. It's clear Heidi's really nervous. She could be a kid's primary school teacher. She's softly spoken and slightly self-conscious and she's worried she'll make mistakes. Weirdly, the minute we plug all our gear in and ask her the first question, the power goes down all over southeast Queensland and northern New South Wales. So we just sit and eat cake and chat informally. After an hour of waiting for the power to come back on, we made the decision to postpone the interview. But as soon as we did that, the power came back on. And now, Heidi's relaxed and laughing. We've been careful, though, in our chat not to ask her anything we might want to know in the interview so that it's still fresh when we chat. She's really lovely. Heidi certainly doesn't fit the stereotype of an injecting drug user. It just shows how inaccurate stereotypes are. Heidi's health and her overall well-being has really suffered from the impacts of those stereotypes and the subsequent stigma. Yeah, there definitely is a lot of stigma going around when it comes to um, people that do choose to inject, and I am one of those people. Um, So going back, um, I'm 41 now. Um, I was a very shy, um, not confident person when I was younger and when I was about 21 um, I was working in a bar and um, I met my some of my work colleagues and um, we would go out and party and that's where I first got introduced to using um drugs and it started off uh, just using, you know, MDMA pills and then it went to speed as well as pills and then it went to crystal meth. Um, Yeah, so that's kind of how it started and how I got introduced. So um, when I was um, 26, I, I met my my first very serious partner um, and without me knowing, um, he was actually a heroin addict uh, and he used to inject multiple times a day and I had no idea. Um, I didn't know much about heroin back in those days because I was choosing to use uppers um and um when I found out that he was actually using heroin I'm a very inquisitive person 
and I asked him, I told him that I wanted to try it with him um, and he said no and I told him that I would just go and get it myself anyway and that I would do it myself um, and so, yeah, he did me up when I um, was with him. And did that change things for you about where you wanted to go? And it's funny you were saying that happened. I've got had two long-term partners that were both injecting users of heroin and the same thing. I had no idea. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing how so much can happen and, and you're quite oblivious. Yes. To what, to what it's happening. Oh, I didn't think I was naive at all, but I was very naive um, when it came to uh, him and what he was doing. Um it wasn't until, you know, he asked if he could do it in my house because he had nowhere to go and do it and that if he couldn't do it in my house that he would do it in his car and I didn't want him to get in trouble. So I said, sure, you can do it in the house, but I, I want to I wanna watch you. And, um, yeah, that was kind of the beginning of the end, I guess. It, it broke my heart watching it. Um, but then, yeah, I became very curious and I wanted to try to. And I'm lucky that um, it was probably only a handful of times that um, we did it together. Um, I would, at that time, there was no way known that I could stick a, a needle in myself. Like I was so scared of needles. Um, but, you know, I trusted him Um and yeah, so did you? Um, did he always put the needle in for you, or, or did you end up? No, he always did the needle for me. Um, yeah, I, I could, I couldn't do it. But um, so fast forward to 2017. Um, actually, no, well, I guess we'll go back in 2015. I was diagnosed with chronic pain, uh, chronic back pain. And um, I had been to a few different pain clinics, both public and private. Um, I uh, suffer from a few mental health conditions. So I've got major depression, anxiety, um, borderline personality disorder, a um, bit of PTSD. Um, I was in a pain clinic when I met a young young man. Um, and he was actually in hospital across the road from me and he was getting, he was on Suboxone and he was getting taken off all of his opiates. Um, and I was on most of those opiates that he was coming off of. And, um, I'm a bit of a easy target, I guess you could say, um, I'm, I, I trust in people too easily and I give myself away too easily to people. Um, and, yeah, so he was an injector um, and when I came out of pain clinic and he came out of hospital, we used to catch up um, and he would also inject me Um and it got to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't, um, 
if he wasn't there, yeah. I couldn't use. And it got to the point where I just went, well, you know what, um, I don't need him. He was taking my my pain medication as well. So I, yeah, so. So that was the cost in a way, wasn't it, that for, for it, him to actually administer, you had to give him a bit of yes, your medication. Yes, and because he had a higher tolerance than me, he was taking more than what I was, obviously, and um, I ended up having to go doctor shopping and things like that because I was running out of medication and I was running out fast. So so basically your chronic pain wasn't being serviced because the, the, the pain medication that you were prescribed, basically it all wasn't going to you. Yeah, that's correct. Three, yeah. qu- three quarters of it would have been going to him and I would have been getting about a quarter of it. Um, and so, yeah, one day I just went, you know, um, it's so quickly I got the feel for the steel. Um, I love that. Exp- that's a great expression. I've, I've never heard that. Haven't you? Because it is that thing, is it? So you've gone from someone that could never think of administering, you know, an injection to themselves yeah. to the moment. What does that feel like when you actually do it for yourself? Is that just a, a, a different feeling for you to take control of your medication as well? Um, it wasn't, it was a friggin' rush. <laughs> yeah. It was a, a massive rush to be able to um, to get it, like, first go. Um, and, you know, and it, it was like, yes, you know, like I've done it and I don't need you anymore and, and now, you know, hopefully I can stop the doctor shopping and, and I can just do it on my own, like, you know, I've figured it out, I've beat you, you know. Yeah. What happens to Heidi, and imagine doctors don't, um, you know, I imagine they're not complete, completely um, positive about the idea of the drugs being used, you know, via injection. Do you have to be really careful? Um, and do you still, are you still an active um, injector of your medication? Yeah, so um, you do have to be really careful. Yes, I am still um, an active injector. Um, I did for, uh, I think, from in 2017, um, they found out that I was doctor shopping through Medicare and the DDU, which is the Drug Dependency Unit, and... Um, all three of the doctors that I was doctor shopping with got notified that I had been doctor shopping and I got completely cut off from all of the opiates that I was taking, um, com- like just stopped, completely stopped. Doctor shopping is a phenomenon where patients consult a number of different doctors to obtain a prescription for a drug of choice often a drug of dependence, such as an addictive pain medication. A patient consults multiple doctors on the knowledge that the prescribing doctor is not aware that another doctor has prescribed the same or similar drugs, such as if the prescribing doctor did know he or she would refuse to prescribe it on the basis that it would be detrimental to the patient's health and well-being. Doctor shopping is illegal and can have serious consequences for both doctors and patients. So they didn't come and try and address the situation with your pain? No, um, they didn't try to. All they saw was the fact that I had started using needles and I was injecting. 
Um, and yeah, basically they, I, I was using a lot a day, like an awful lot, you know, um, um, and it put me into a massive withdrawal. So, uh, yeah, they, they stopped me at the drop of a hat, um, cut me off and I went into the biggest withdrawal that I've ever been in. So I'm kind of curious cause it's, it's, you're obviously someone who was dependent on drugs. Yes. Um, the fact that your doctor shopping says you're extremely dependent on drugs and you're actually working the room, as you say. Yeah. Um, what does it feel like to be, I mean, as a, the system that then completely cuts you off? But did they offer any sort of withdrawal service or any other service that, that would account for the fact that they've just taken someone, basically they've just withdrawn all the supply? And they know, of course, what happens when someone starts coming in, coming off drugs. Yeah. So, was there any support, anything around that, or were you just cut off? I was just cut off, um, and I was just told that if I did try to get any more uh, opiates, you know, through doctors, et cetera, that the doctors would lose their licence. So I wasn't um, given any information on where I could go to, you know, during my withdrawal. I wasn't given any um, benzodiazepines or anything like that to help withdraw. Um, I was basically, I, I was left on my own. Wow. How did you manage that period of, of, of drug withdrawal? It was horrendous. It, it was absolutely horrendous. Um, I actually had my mum and a neighbour that were helping me out at the time with Valium. Um, I couldn't sleep. I had restless leg syndrome. I was vomiting. I had diarrhea. I had headaches. I I was. It was. It was. It was really horrible. I wouldn't. And all this time you were in pain as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Did you? I mean, did you? Ever, had you ever experienced withdrawal before that? I mean, was this the first time you went through that full withdrawal? And did you have any knowledge of what you might go through? Because you've got obviously your mum and your neighbour or whatever coming in to help. Did they know what to expect? No, my mum uh, was quite naive as well about drugs. She wasn't aware what I was doing. So when it came out, it was also a big shock to her as well, which was something something that I still feel a lot of guilt and shame about, um, you know, that you don't really want your – my mum's my best friend and um, just – having her find out that, you know, I was injecting drugs, felt like that I was yeah, I was ruining did her she, life. Did she react like that too? Because I imagine had to re-inject drugs at home where she lives and she felt there was some kind of, you know, betrayal or, um, or trust or something? Or She didn't really feel betrayed. She felt upset that I couldn't that I didn't go to her and tell her that that was where I had headed to. Um, She never, ever thought that I would be able to inject myself either because up until the age of 21, I used to try to bite people and kick them when they used to try to give me, you know, my my vaccination. So, you know. She would have been really surprised, yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely shocked to the core. Um, And she was the... Only one and still is to this day that still supports me. Um, you know, she's my cheerleader. And did, she, did she have a sense of, um, so all the, that whole period before obviously the withdrawal when the 
information got to her that you'd been an injecting drug user. Yeah. She, were you seeing her regularly through this um, in that period before? Because you obviously showed no personality changes. There was no real change no. for you that she could pick up on. Yeah, no. So there was no real change. Um, you know, I, I was never... Oh, we lived together um, while I was injecting and so, you know, I was quite sly about it, I guess, um, and I would use when she would be asleep and, you know, I sometimes, you know, I'd nod off for hours and I'd wake up and, you know, my foot had been in a drawer or, you know, like... Um, you know, I'd still have a needle in my hand and, um, you know, I often wondered whether or not when there was those times that I was out to it if she hadn't known but didn't know how to approach me about it. But, no, she just she had no idea. She had no idea and, and it was really um, it broke my heart when she found out because I, I really didn't want her to see me the way that a lot of other people saw me. Heidi is so honest and unguarded. This sense of letting other people she loves down is really key for her. It's really clear that this isn't where she wanted her life to be. The introduction to drugs while working in a bar, her partner's drug use, and then years later after not using drugs, it was chronic pain that has led her to her injecting. Heidi has significant pain issues. She's a really great example of how diverse people who inject drugs are and the many reasons why they do it. Heidi's disc has eroded, she's had failed back surgery and now she faces a life with an enduring chronic pain. Um, it, made, it makes me feel totally invalidated. Um, I feel like every single day I have to fight with some kind of medical profession to get the medication that I need for my back. Um, but uh, as for every day, how it affects me, um, I have turned into a hermit. I don't go out anymore. Um, I don't speak to a lot of my friends anymore. Um, I can't do any housework. I live with my mum. And, um, yeah, so I can't do any housework. I can't even make my own bed anymore. So um, the, the best that I could say that I can, you know, pain-wise, if you do a score out of 10, you know, the pain scale, zero is the least pain, 10 is the most that you're in. If if I'm not, not on any medication, I, I can get easily – and I do have a low pain tolerance and a high drug tolerance, obviously. Um, but I can get, you know, I, what I would say would be a 12 over 10. If I do have my medication um, and, you know, I can get it off the doctors, um, then I can sit somewhere around about a, about a four, four, you know, maybe to a, a six. So tell me how you manage now, Heidi, now that, you know, with the medication after, you know, the doctors have obviously um, monitoring your medication. Yep. 
how do you manage your pain now with your medication and how do you manage your doctors? Yeah, so that's a bit of a, um, a tricky one. Um, I do now have actually a fantastic GP. Um, however, he does not know that I do still inject. Um, I did tell him that I did have an addiction back in 2017 um, and I'm actually flagged still as a doctor shopper. So from 2017, I, I still flash up on GP screens as a doctor shopper. Um, so I had to get really real with him and tell him what had happened in the past. Um, and um, I guess just be very forthcoming and I had my mum there as well who was willing to vouch for me and, you know, say that she would take the tablets off me and she would give them out to me and things like that. So, um, you know, he trusted me that way first. I do, I'm on a daily pickup, so I pick up my medication every single day. Um, that's seven days a week and that uh, is a non-negotiable and I'm happy to do that if it means that I can get my pain medication and I can be out of pain. So that was the, as you said, you got the, um, when you were doctor shopping before and the system just shut you down. Yep. Does the, did you have to, I don't know, you said your GP trusted you and, and it sort of allowed you in. Is it, is it as arbitrary as that, that the, the GP went, well, I'll let you in? Or does the system which blocked you have to kind of give your new doctor that approval to let you in? I mean, wh where are the impediments here to kind of getting back into some proper treatment? That's actually um, a really good question and it's not one that I, I do know the actual answer for. I'm not, I'm not sure at what stage my, I guess, you could almost call it like a probation, I guess, you know, period ended from me doing doctor shopping and getting cut off by the drug dependency unit. Um, I don't know exactly when that ended, but what I do know is when I started seeing my pain specialist, um, he was able to prescribe me S8 opiates after I was having surgery. Because of her chronic pain, Heidi spent a lot of time in the health system. They know she has a drug dependency and pain issues, so they have supported her towards better management, but she still struggles with acceptance, which makes her feel like she isn't treated equally. Um, there was not that place of acceptance like there seems to be for um, people who choose to drink or, you know, might um, might be alcoholics or things like that. Um, they're more than welcome to go into hospital and if you're someone that struggles with um, with prescription um, medication or if it might be um, illegal um, medication, you know, then you're not, you're not accepted. It's not talked about. They don't talk about it in group especially, but you, they will talk about being an alcoholic and drinking and things like that. So, no, I learned very quickly that that's not something that's like accepted behaviour. Um, it's 
very taboo. It's, Were you like a bad girl? Yeah. I, Is that the thing of like don't, you know, we can't trust yeah, Heidi. She's we, a bad girl. Yeah, we need to keep an eye on her. Yeah. yeah. Did you pick that up? Even if someone doesn't say it, you do you pick that up in their body language or their... Oh, yeah. How do you read it? So do, what, does that, what does that look like? What does judgment look like to you? Um, judgment looks like being watched more than any other person. Um, judgment looks like um, not getting, you know, to get through a withdrawal, for instance. I was on 10 milligrams of Valium in a 24-hour period when there might be somebody, you know, other people that would be put straight on 40 or 50 milligrams of Valium if they were a drinker. And um, so, you know, it can be um, you're watched more or you're they will put you on the most minimum of other medication because, oh, my God, if, if you've injected before and you've used, you know, you've, you've injected opiates or whatever you're injecting, um, you know, you you could be possibly at risk of becoming addicted to, you know, anything and everything. And in my case, you know, with mental health as well, I'm on anti antidepressants and, like, I found even all of that was monitored, you know, a lot more closely. So, um, yeah, I've had quite a few instances with different hospitals. Um, where I have been judged, I've been spoken to like not a human. Heidi's fear of being judged by the medical system meant when she developed an infection of her vein from injecting, it's a very treatable problem and it can lead to sepsis and if untreated with consequences such as amputation and death. Because to get treatment, you have to go to an ED or a doctor and they're going to know you've been injecting. So Heidi kept it to herself. The fear of stigma could actually kill you because it can delay or stop someone seeking treatment. I I actually hid it. I hid it for quite like a few days. I hid it from my mum because, um, you know, I didn't want her to know and I knew that I was going to disappoint her again. Um, but, you know, once I did show her, she was like, holy shit, we need to get you to the hospital um, and I came into the hospital and I don't think I had a single vein that I hadn't mangled myself and um, it took them probably, oh, it took them a couple of hours before they could even put in a, a cannula. Um, yeah, cannula. They... Um, I wasn't treated very nicely. Did they say anything in particular to you or was that that they knew obviously with the infection that you came in that it was because you'd, you know, been injecting? I heard I did overhear some staff talking about me and I'm not, I, I assume that they weren't expecting that I could hear them. Um, and, yeah, I heard them. Um, I was called a junkie. Um, what does that feel like when a word like that? Because it's one of those words people throw around and it's I'm always amazed that with political correctness that that word's still there. But what does it feel like? That feels like absolute shit, basically. It feels terrible to be labelled something like that. 
what I do is not who I am. And, you know, to, you know, to have professionals who are, who choose to, to be in that, position who choose to come to work every day in in a health position so that they can help people, you know, get healthy from being sick. Um, It was really gut-wrenching and it it was heartbreaking. I already have enough, I had enough then and I've still got enough now guilt and shame about what I was doing and to have people that are meant to be looking after you, calling you a junkie, while they're having a conversation to another nurse or doctor is absolutely heartbreaking. Did it impact on your family too, Heidi? Like did, you know, did the stigma extend to your friendship and family group as well? Yeah, definitely. So to both, um, my dad, my dad, um, we don't talk anymore, um, but that was a bit of a strained relationship anyway. But, yeah, he, he just couldn't understand it and he didn't want to understand it. So it didn't matter, you know, what, what I told him as to why I was doing it or, you know, um, he, he just, he yeah, I think it was too much for him. Um, so we don't have a relationship and I don't have a relationship with um, my only other sibling um, also due to... Um, them not wanting to understand it either, and just and and them um, talking, particularly my sibling. Um, yeah, there's a lot of name calling that goes on there that I just decided I I couldn't deal with. Because that's part of the shaming process, isn't it? Yeah. Within within the family. Yeah. So it's partly. I mean, they say. We don't understand it, so we're not going to try and understand it. But in, in truth, they're actually punishing you. Is that what you feel? Because if people want to understand something, they just need to ask some questions and get some knowledge. Um, but they choose not to. I yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, it's it's really hard. Um, I'm not sure if it's an ignorance or if it's a, or if it's a concern, you know, like they're concerned for you maybe to start out with and then they, you know, if you keep on repeating the behaviour, then they just can't put up with it anymore or, um, but um, it has severely impacted my, my, my family yeah. And um, I have only one person that stands by me, and that's my mum. And even my mum and I, we do still have a bit of trouble every now and then with it. You know, she doesn't understand it, um, but she has become a lot better with it. That's great to hear yeah. that you've got someone that. I understand that when you're telling me that story, I was, you know, I was really feeling that because, you know, having had. Now, particularly my, my first partner who was an injecting drug user, I was that person that I would be really judgmental. Mm. Um, and I look back now and I realise I was making it all about me and I was actually really ashamed. Yeah. And that that was really hard. Like I, I realised that, you know, I, I my shame because of the prejudice and the stigma was getting in the way 
of dealing with anything because that's what it became about. And I do realise it was like I was going, this is not okay. And it, di- it didn't actually help that person yeah. at all. Yeah. It just it just was, you know, it was this dark place and we couldn't reach out to anyone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, that is defi- definitely the case, um, you know, and even even with me back with my with my first serious partner that was you know he that was um injecting me with heroin even then like i i didn't really understand it and you know how someone could go so far you know that they have to inject themselves with something um and that's where i'm at now and you know, there's been a lot that has happened in my childhood and my my teens, adolescence, and um, I guess this is the way that I cope with all of that stuff. Yeah, I suppose is there a way that you could, because people ask the question, why do you inject yourself? Like you could just take tablets and you could do whatever, but why do you inject yourself? You, yeah. You could ex- just explain that yep. to someone. How, how might you explain it? Um, so how it was explained to me by the person that I actually ended up having to do the doctor shopping for or because of was, um, one, it, it, it helps with your pain straight away. So, like, as soon as I've injected, I I, I don't get the pain in, in my back um, and um, I get um, I get a, this taste. I get the taste of the, the actual medication in the back of my mouth, which I enjoy. Um, there's the feel for the steel, as I mentioned earlier on, like you, some people actually do enjoy that feeling of putting a needle into your arm. Um, there is, it, it goes from like the, the whole prep, prepping everything. So, you know, like cleaning your spoons and, and, um, you know, I use wheel filters for my my opiates, and so you know, getting your your wheels all all cleaned. Uh, um, it's a real ritual. For it's you, a, it is. It's a total ritual. It's yeah, from from everything from prepping it to actually injecting it to then the feeling that you get from it and the relief that it gives me of my pain and then you know you get the taste of it and and it also became a little bit of a game for me as well because because I did mangle my veins so badly back in 2017 it became a game for me like to see to be able to get a vein and, you know, like I could sit there for hours and I would pin cushion myself, literally. I would sit there and I would just uh, one after the other, after the other, after the other, just keep trying to get a vein and I couldn't. And so it became a little bit of a game for me to be able to actually hit a vein. So there was a thrill in that as well. A massive thrill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so 
yeah, it became it became a game and it became like, yeah, once I hit it, it was like, yes, shit, holy, I finally, I finally gotten it. So tell me too, I'd love to know too how the, the NSP, the Needle and Syringe Program, has given support as well and how it's sort of, you know, helped you from a harm reduction point of view of accessing, you know, because clearly you need some allies yeah. to keep yourself well. Yeah. Um, the people at the NSP have been absolutely amazing. Um, I don't actually know where I would be without them. They have been so good to me. At, they do not judge you in the slightest. Um, they, I actually feel like I belong to a little family. Um, even my mum can come in and, and they'll talk to my mum. They must normalise it for her too. Yeah, they do. Um, and also she, she would be reassured that you're with people who aren't judging you and are providing you with know, support and, yeah. and, yeah. and the tools that you need in a safe way. Yeah. It must be comforting for you. Yeah, you know, um, and we've got the naloxone and things like that at home. Um, so they talk, have talked to mum about that. You know, mum's spoken to them on occasions where she's been a bit concerned about me um, and she'll, without, you know, them obviously breaching any confidentiality, um, you know, they'll have a good talk to her and she'll, you know, she feels a bit better about herself. But um, they they have helped me so much. Have you had to go to like a chemist or maybe a hospital after hours to ever access fits? What's that like if you can't? Because obviously when you go to a, a needle and syringe program, yeah. there's no judgment. Yeah. Have you had the? I've had to go to chemists, yes, and um, oh, you can. That must be hard because you've got, <laughs> you've got everyone in the, you must have to pick your time. Yeah. And your staff. Well, you've got to pick a chemist and you've got to pick, yeah, your time. You shouldn't have to do that though because it's mm. a health. You shouldn't have to but you do and, you know, they they say that they're not judging but you can just tell that really there is judgment there, you know, like they know, they're not stupid, they know what what you're going to use it for. You can tell when some when somebody is um, against something or, you know, well, or if you when you turn your back that, you know, you're getting chit-chatted about or. Well, you can feel the, I heard this one thing happen once where my partner used to stash cap. They were capped fits um, that he'd used, obviously ones that maybe go back and use them again, I don't know, but in jackets and stuff at, and and we lived in a hot climate and we never wore jackets. So I was at this exhibition opening one night and I put on a jacket I hadn't worn for ages and I'm sort of talking to someone as I'm talking, I put my hand in my pocket and I don't know what I've got and I just pull it out to look at it. <gasps> oh, no. And as I'm chatting, <laughs> pull out, I've just got a capped syringe sitting in my hand. <laughs> the person just like looked at it and looked at me and I just sort of went, oh, and I just kind of, I went, I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just going to put it away. But yeah. it was the feeling of that of that moment was like I could have fallen into the floor. Yeah. And the look on their face. Yeah. And you went, wow, you've got no idea why that was in there. Yeah. You um, want to crawl into a great big, you know, hole and, and just bury yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That feeling of going like, 
you know, of feeling judged. And it, I was going, and all, it's like going, you know, you know, just just the fact that I had a fit in my pocket. There was yeah. like, oh, you're a junkie. Oh, you're, you know, no one had, didn't have to say anything. Yeah. Do your friends know? I mean, you said you don't talk to your friends much, but do they know now? Um, some of them do. Yeah. Yep. And um, a lot of them I choose not to tell. Um, so you've managed to keep it pretty undercover if only really specific people know or yeah. don't know. So people out in the world other than... You've got your circle of trust. Yeah, you've got a circle of trust. And So I, those friends who do know, are they still in communication or have you lost friends? Um, I have definitely lost friends over it, um, but I do also have some, you know, there's a couple of solid friendships there that they don't, they don't like it, they don't do it themselves and... I guess, um, again, some of them don't even understand it, but they choose to just see that it's, they cho- you know, they just choose to look past it. They see Heidi. They don't see anybody else. Um, and if I'm not doing it around them, which I don't, um, then, you know, they don't really see a problem. The truth of the matter is 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 that there are bankers, solicitors, um, you know, judges, yeah. anaesthetists. There are so many high-powered, high-professional um, business people that are doing exactly what I do and but other people, you know, the the public, the people that are calling people junkies would never know. Thank you so much, Heidi. Today you heard Heidi's story. Join us next episode on The Daily Dose when we hear from Digby, someone who stopped injecting drugs in the 1970s but was still dealing with stigma decades later. Needle and Syringe Programs, NSPs, are an evidence-based public health program funded to reduce the individual and community harms associated with injecting drug use. Over the last 30 years, NSPs have proven to be very successful in preventing the spread of HIV and viral hepatitis in Australia and globally. To find out more about harm reduction and the strong body of evidence that supports these policies, programs and practices, you can visit the website harmreductionaustralia.org.au. To find out more about childhood trauma and its impacts on individuals and the community, you can visit the Blue Knot Foundation website, www.bluenot.org.au.